Good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 146 of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where we have yet to earn our seat among the mighty elf friends of old. It seems like all we have to do, though, is handle the council's problem for them. <laughs> but folks, go ahead and pull up a bench in the common room, and we'll be right there. Yep. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who has inherited not an heirloom only, but the sinews of the kings of men. Okay, you guys know I didn't write that, right? <laughs> Alan Sisto. Giving away our secrets. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate that. But who can tell? Well, I'm not putting it to the test today. <laughs> but I am going <laughs> to hand it back to you to introduce the next segment. Well, today we're bringing you another new installment of The North Wing. Barlam and Butterbur had a room or two in the North Wing at the Prancing Pony Inn, made special for hobbits. Well, this is our place, made special for some of our listeners, to give us a chance to get to know them. Now, rooms at the North Wing are a little hard to come by these days, so only our patrons at the Elrond's Honorarium and Dance Contribution tiers are eligible. So if you'd like to be one of the next patrons to join us, be sure to check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod. Yeah, please do. I mean, we've got a bit of a waiting list for the North Wing right now, but we'll be getting to all of them soon, and we will make room for more if necessary. As best we can. Well then, why don't we go ahead and welcome today's guest to the North Wing, Chad Bornhold. Hello there. Hello, Chad. Hello, Chad. Welcome. Thank you very much. Well, we're going to start out with a question we ask everybody. You've listened to the show, so you know what's coming. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What do you do? What do your loved ones think of all this Tolkien stuff that you're into? That sort of thing. Okay. Uh, my name is Chad. I was born in Orange, Texas, which is the very far southeast corner of Texas, right before you get mm -hmm. to Louisiana. Mm -hmm. I know it well. I lived there until I started traveling the U.S. After I finished with college, my first stint in college, and I finished up with my music stuff in college, I went all over the nation traveling as an instrument tech, which was hooking up big plants and refineries to computers. Wow. And then... uh then I moved to the Houston area, and now what I do for a living, the easiest way to explain it is I program the refinery to think like me and operate kind of like on a cruise control. Wow. Wow. As far as what my family thinks of this, they do think it's cool. They think that pretty much uh, all this stuff that I get so headlong eccentrically into is cool, <laughs> but they are not willing to go quite as far. Ah, yes. Understandably so. <laughs> so it's like, it's cool, but maybe, maybe you're taking it a step too far in their opinion. Just about like everything else I've ever done since birth. <laughs> <laughs> we know nothing of things like right. that. That's never yeah. been our experience at right. all. Yeah. I know nothing of taking it too far. Like what? You're going to start a podcast? What? <laughs> what? Know, it's going to be weekly? You're, you're going to go weekly now? Yeah. You know yeah. nothing, Sean Marchese. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. It is true. It is known to take another game of three. It is known. It is known. <laughs> Chad, I know, um, because I've talked to you quite a bit, I know you're a collector of memorabilia and stuff for many of our favorite geek properties. Not only books, I know you've got some amazing Tolkien art. I won't tell the world about your Star Wars collection if you don't. Um, but I'm curious <laughs> if, uh, if you have a favorite Tolkien collectible that you'd like to tell us about or a couple. Well, I believe you two of all people would know, uh, what my favorite Tolkien collectible is because you happen to have a <laughs> copy of it. My yep. personal office at my house, I've decorated it with Tolkien stuff. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I found the largest map of middle earth. Of course it's third age and 
I want one. I want one that shows second and third with the 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 view of where the part of the second that is underwater. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to get the biggest map I could get put on one of my walls, mm. and uh, I got a pretty large one. It's like three foot tall by four foot wide. Wow. Wow. And so then in Rivendell and the PJ movies on one of the walls, the wall across from Gil Ryan with the uh, shards of Narsal yes. right behind that, there's the painting by uh, Alan Lee called mm-hmm. the sword that was broken. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I did a whole bunch of research seeing if I could like buy a copy of that and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And so one of my wife's uncle's friends painted it for me. And wow. the one she painted, the one she painted for me is, I'm not exactly, I don't remember exactly how big it is, but it's huge. It's like seven foot wide by four foot tall. Oh, oh man. Wow. The ones that y'all have mm-hmm. would have been that big had the shipping not been $500 each. <laughs> well, I would have had a wall big enough to put it on. So thank yeah. you for a more reasonably <laughs> yeah. sized one. I appreciate it. And I got to say that Belendil painting that you sent us copies oh, of. Oh, it's stunning. Absolutely phenomenal, it. folks. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Chad, for that. It's it's amazing, and it looks great on my wall. It does. Thank you. Well, Chad, the question that we ask everybody who comes to the Prancing Pony, when and how did you first discover Tolkien's works? What was your experience like, and why do you keep coming back? What I think of is I know I can't top your listener Chris's mm. way that he was <laughs> done with his, I think yes. it was his aunt that yeah. read them on tape to him. That was him. amazing. That I believe is the best yeah. one I've heard. Yeah. But mine is really funny, and I'm not sure if anyone will think it's quite as funny as <laughs> we I We all am, think we're funnier than we are, don't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was a kid, I was really into anything that was complex and difficult, and so with that being said, I did try playing D and D a couple times, but it just took mm, so much mm, of my time yeah. and I was trying to do so, yeah. so yeah. many things. So I was heavily into Ingve Malmsteen okay. type guitar yeah. playing yeah. and stuff like that. And, and your, your listener, Jordan, oh, yeah. will probably know who I'm talking <laughs> I remember about. I remember Malmsteen. Yeah. So, um, whenever I was doing all that, I would always, it took up a lot of my time trying to oh, yeah. get really good at music and all the other stuff. Well, Every now and then someone would ask me if I liked Lord of the Rings. And now I know that I did not realize what they were talking about. They would say, it seems like you would love Lord of the Rings. And I would think, no, that's goofy. I'm, I'm not into that. And so, and I now know as an adult that what I was thinking of were those people dressed up doing the line dancing no offense to anyone who likes this, but it oh, was a Lord play or something like that called yeah, Lord of yeah. the Dance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every time, every time someone asks me, you like Lord of the Rings? <laughs> no, why would I like no. people dancing on stage? No, I don't. Look at their heels, yeah. Well. Yes, and, the, and then they go, man, it really seems like you'd like that. And I think, <laughs> that makes no sense to me. So then whenever I started seeing the uh, trailers for the PJ movies coming out, I thought, wow, that looks really cool. It looks like D&D probably stole everything that they got from this show. And so, and I I loved Excalibur and stuff like that. So I was like, we got to go see this. So while I'm watching the movie, I'm thinking to myself, I already know this. I already know everything that's happening. I've, I already know everything about this, but it's a little bit different than what I remember. And so 
I went back to work and I was talking to some of the guys there and there's one guy that said, oh man, if you like that, you have to read the Silmarillion. The Silmarillion is, it's right up your alley. As much as you like all that difficult music stuff, you would love the Silmarillion. So I'm like, okay, well, let's try that. Well, I read the Lord of the Rings a couple of times and then I read the Silmarillion three or four times. I'm like, man, this is great. Well, then I went back and read The Hobbit, and I, I thought to myself, that's what I know. Mm. I know The Hobbit, not mm. Lord of the Rings. But I still, I knew that I had mm. never read it, and so I didn't know right. how that was possible. But one day it hit me that I used to watch cartoons every right. Saturday mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Yep. Rankin uh, and yeah. Bass. After a while, I realized the entire reason that I know all this is because I know the Rankin and yep. Bass stuff really well. And I didn't realize that's what right. it was when I was a kid. I just thought it was another Dungeons and Dragons right, cartoon yeah. or something, you know. And once I realized that, I started it started coming back to me. And it's amazing how much of it I actually already had memorized, but it took that to actually yeah. Bring uh, it to know, the fore and, jog yeah. my memory. Right. And so... So uh, it's almost like I've always known it. It's kind of like Leia. I've always known <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. So, it's like nice. you're. It's like you're meant to be here among there you go. among Tolkien fans. Exactly. That's great, man. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. Let me go ahead and ask now. What's your favorite book in Tolkien's Legendarium, and why? And then uh, after that, maybe tell us what your favorite work by Tolkien that's not part of the Legendarium is, if you have one. Okay. So. First, I'll answer the second question first because I actually only read the rest of the stuff because of Corey and y'all. Mm. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, but the, the my favorite one is the Silmarillion, just because of how extremely difficult it is to understand. Yeah, and that's what I like. Yeah, is the difficulty and trying to make sense and make something that is really difficult seem easy. Sometimes I think Huron is better. Children of Huron is better, but that's just because I like the, uh, I like the whole thought of this is what happens when you mess with gods, yeah. mm -hmm. you know? So I, I like that thought too, but the Silmarillion, it's, it's hard to say that anything other than the Silmarillion is my favorite because the Silmarillion includes all the yeah, others. It really so. yeah. And it's got that complexity that you talk about that it just, it just kind of sucks you in and you could just spend, right. Spend a lifetime there. I could read it every day for the rest of my life. As a matter of fact, I have it playing in my truck constantly, the whole time I'm going back and forth to work, every day for the past seven years. You just awesome. have to get past Martin Shaw's Iluvatar. <laughs> right, right. It. And, you know, and it's the the Maedros, Maedros, yeah, and the Tenequetzal. Yeah, yeah. it, it wasn't until I heard you guys start talking about the Tenequetzal that I realized that uh, I had permanently ingrained that incorrectly in my mind. <laughs> I'm still think hard I for some of us. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I've permanently <laughs> embedded a, a few wrong pronunciations in my mind, too. Right. Yeah. What's your, your favorite memory of a Tolkien related activity, uh, besides hanging out with us at TechSmooth earlier this year, of course? I don't remember what year this was, but pretty close to the time that The Return of the King ended, Peter Jackson and Weta and all those guys, they were, you guys may remember this better than I do, but they were traveling. Uh, around and they had an exhibit that was running all over the nation hmm. doing all the uh, props and the costumes and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I believe it was the Houston Museum of Natural Science or something hmm. like that. One of those places. Yeah. Okay. They basically turned it into Middle Earth and I still have pictures from it. Wow. Bummer. But it was pretty cool. They they had the the boat with with Boromir's oh, my likeness oh, wow. with his clothes. 
Oh yeah, it was it was really cool. I don't, a be. whole bunch of that stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't remember that. I remember uh yeah, I remember I. a couple of things. Well, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, so it's hard to know what was just happening in LA and what was actually traveling, but yeah. um I remember some some events, but I don't remember that. That sounds cool. Neither do I. Mm-hmm. Well, and now we get to enter our favorite time of the show, uh, the lightning round for quick questions and quickish answers. <laughs> okay. All right. Your favorite scene or moment in The Lord of the Rings? Um, the book or the movie? <laughs> no, the book. Uh, the book, I, I really like the part where Aragorn is giving up his earthly body. Mm. And yeah, in the appendices. Yeah. Right. That's a more, great moment. More than memory. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What's one place in Middle Earth you wish you could visit? 100% positive is Rivendell. That's like the place where I would love to be forever. Mm, okay. Understandable. Only while it's protected. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Fair. Fair enough. Not now. No. <laughs> would you rather hang out with the Noldor or the Tellery? Now, this is assuming it's first age and the Noldor you're hanging out with are not uh, Feanor and his sons. That's a tough one because of uh, it's indecisive me coming up because the Tellery, the uh, the music yeah. type people and the creative type people yeah. because I do a whole lot of building and creating things and I do a whole lot of music and things mm-hmm. like that. So so I, I would have to say I'd split my time with them <laughs> pre-burning. <laughs> be a little awkward after that, I suppose. I was going to yeah. say, right. it's going to be a little hard for you to go across the Helker right. every yeah. time you wanted to switch right. gears. Right, exactly. Maybe I could get, uproot an island or something. <laughs> okay, Ulmo, you go right awesome. <laughs> Favorite dwarf? Oh, goodness. I don't know. I I, I like the story of meme, and, but mm. I also like the uh, the Pukelman story, and I kind of consider the Pukelman to be more relatives oh, okay. of dwarves than of men the uh what was the it was the uh the faithful the faithful stone right i like that but as far as real dwarves go i'm guessing that i would have to go with balan or someone who balin. we don't know a whole lot about balin's yeah, a good someone, choice yeah. I like that's it. a good one yeah yeah well would you consider yourself a mary or a pippin um i act like pippin but my mind is that of mary's okay fair enough Fair enough. (laughs) Those are some great answers, Chad. We really appreciate your time with us. And uh, we've loved having you here in the North Wing. But I think for now, it's time for us all to head back over to the common room and join the rest of the listeners. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks again, Chad. And we will hopefully see you back here at our next Questions After Nightfall, if not sooner. And now we return you to the podcast already in progress. Well, thank you, Alan. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get started, I have a quick correction to make from the last episode. Okay. For once, I actually caught this one myself, so I don't have anyone to thank. Last episode, I said Christopher Tolkien was elected a fellow of New College in 1975. And then a moment later, I said he resigned his fellowship in 1975. I remember that. Like, wow, (laughs) he was only there for like a few months, huh? That would have been a very short time there indeed. And of course, it was a mistake. Uh, He actually was elected a fellow of New College in 1963. And he resigned in 1975. Obviously, I just looked down at the wrong number in my notes when I was talking about his start date. So sorry about that, folks. Well, I appreciate that clarification, Sean. Thanks. Mm -hmm. And folks, let's go ahead and get back to the book now, because as you know, we are all about the books here at the Prancing Pony Podcast. Yes, we are. We bring you other Tolkien stuff from time to time. But at heart, Alan and I are fans of Tolkien's books and books about Tolkien. That's our passion. Mm -hmm. And as you know, we read a lot of books in preparation for the show every week. So if you'd like to get your hands on a book that we've mentioned, you're going to want to check out the official library page of our website. 
prancingponypodcast.com, where we have links to every book we've mentioned on the show. And there's a lot of other stuff on our website, too. Show notes and book links specific to each episode, outtakes, prancing pony ponderings, and a few mm-hmm. other little extras. Yeah. You'll also find a link to our new online storefront at teespring.com slash stores slash PPP, where you can find shirts, mugs, stickers, and other great Prancing Pony podcast gear. So please check that out. Yeah. And now let's wrap up the Council of Elrond and see if this committee meeting can finally get the job done. All right. <laughs> I mean, it's taken us how long? Weeks. And Corey Olson is still laughing at us. That's right. You know, we're, we're like dwarves, very dangerous over short distances. We're That's natural right. sprinters, apparently. <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to actually have you start out. It's just a single paragraph, but it's an important one where we left off last week. Okay. There was a silence. At last, Elrond spoke again. This is grievous news concerning Saruman, he said. For we trusted him, and he is deep in all our counsels. It is perilous to study too deeply the arts of the enemy for good or for ill. Mm. But such falls and betrayals, alas, have happened before. Of the tales that we have heard this day, the tale of Frodo was most strange to me. I have known few hobbits, save Bilbo here, and it seems to me that he is perhaps not so alone and singular as I had thought him. The world has changed much since I last was on the westward roads. Which might have been like a thousand years ago, who knows? Could have been, I mean, really. Yeah. He's, he stays at home a lot and has he, for millennia Yeah, well, folks. you know, being the Lord of Rivendell, he, he probably does, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, he says, I've known few hobbits. You want to know which other hobbits did he know? How did he know any hobbits other than, than Bilbo Other here? than Bilbo here, yeah, I wonder. Does he spend time in the Shire? Does he kind of slum it in the Shire when he's on his way back from the Grey Havens? Yeah. I don't know. Or is this a, just a rhetorical thing where he's, saying, yeah. you know, he really I've known few, never... as in none at all. Right. Right. <laughs> that might be it, but... You got to wonder. Yeah. I can't imagine that many hobbits have come to visit him. No, that's probably true. What I really wonder, though, is the line about such falls and betrayals, alas, have happened before. Mm. It's another one of those hints at the greater history behind this. Yeah. And it's kind of like that. I think we talked a couple of episodes ago about the treason that. Yes. We, you know, we learned that treason Treason has has often been been our or has always been our uh, our biggest threat you know or, the, yeah exactly something can't like remember that. the exact and, line yeah but it, that's the gist of it and yeah we don't really get anything about these specific falls and betrayals i guess we get falls we certainly get falls but we don't get any specific betrayals but uh it certainly yeah. makes sense you know there's there's this idea that's kind of baked into into this this idea that it's perilous to study the arts of the enemy you know mm-hmm. studying something can it, it kind of opens a door and if you're not careful you might end up yeah kind of Getting the wrong thing out of that, you might end up sort of falling in love with what it is you're studying. Yeah, you know, originally trying to trying to and come figuring out that well, maybe you can do it, but without being evil. Right. Yeah. But what I really want to talk about here is this thing about hobbits and the fact that Elrond says that perhaps Bilbo isn't so alone and singular as he had thought. Mm. That brings us to uh, a brief sidebar. I want to start with letter two eighty one, which Tolkien wrote to Rainer Unwin in nineteen sixty five. Now, this is really important stuff about both hobbits in general and the sort of tale Tolkien is telling. He says, hobbits were a breed of which the chief physical mark was their stature, and the chief characteristic of their temper was the almost total eradication of any dormant spark. Only about one per mil had any trace of it. Bilbo was specially selected by the authority and insight of Gandalf as abnormal. He had a good share of hobbit virtues, shrewd sense, generosity, patience, and fortitude, and also a strong spark yet unkindled. 
Mm, and, and we do see that in The Hobbit, don't we? We, you know, we, we see the interplay of those Baggins and two calves of his personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we talked about how much that story is about finding the balance between those two halves rather than letting yeah. either one of them take over. You know, he kind of lets the Took side take over for a while and then he has to come back to the middle. But it sounds like there's a lot more to that than it seems at first glance, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Tolkien goes on to say that the story and its sequel are not about types or the cure of bourgeois smugness by wider experience. <laughs> but I love that phrase, by the way. It is great. <laughs> it's my whole life. Uh, it's the cure of bourgeois smugness. <laughs> the cure of bourgeois smugness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say that next time. Why do you do this? Well, I'm trying to cure my bourgeois just smugness. Cure, curing my bourgeois smugness. <laughs> it is true, though. Wider experience would do that. Of course it would. Uh, but he goes on to say that it's about the achievements of specially graced and gifted individuals. I would say, if saying such things did not spoil what it tries to make explicit, by ordained individuals, inspired and guided by an emissary to ends beyond their individual education and enlargement. This is clear in The Lord of the Rings, but it is present if veiled in The Hobbit from the beginning and is alluded to in Gandalf's last words. And the footnote to that last comment explains that he's referencing the line, you don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck just for your sole benefit? Mm, that's right. And we did talk about that when we read those lines by Gandalf back in mm-hmm. The Hobbit. Yeah, absolutely. So for all that we talk and continue to talk about Bilbo finding the balance in himself, it's not just for himself, is it? It's not just for his benefit to find this cure for his bourgeois smugness. <laughs> right. It's not just for that purpose. And it's not just by himself. It's not just by mm. his own means, as in right. it's not just him finding his own way. He's a he's a tool of a larger plan. Absolutely. He absolutely yeah. is. So, but really, Elrond is saying here, you know, uh, maybe he's not so alone and singular. Actually, he is. I mean, Frodo is uniquely singular as well, mm-hmm. but he's got two of the most special hobbits ever under the roof of uh, of the last homely house here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, most hobbits aren't going to have that spark. They're not going to do no. what Frodo and Bilbo have done. They're not going to be like that. Yeah. No, they're going to be like the gaffer complaining about, I can't stand this sort of news in my time of life. It's the, yeah. you know, this is the worst. It's and, the worst thing that could possibly happen. Like, oh no, dude. Right. No. Yeah, no. It can get no, much worse. It can get much, much worse. <laughs> yep. We get a touch on the part that we don't read here, but a little bit of a reminder of the nature of the old forest. I wanted to make sure we touched on the idea that the old forest was once connected all the way to Fangorn. That it was one yeah. big, massive forest. Amazing. A squirrel could go from tree to tree all that way. Pretty incredible. That is that is really incredible. And I, I remember we talked about that on one of our questions after Nightfall episodes. Mm-hmm. It's been yeah. maybe three it's or four of them, three or four back. But yeah, that's, that's a neat idea. And another way in which Middle Earth is a fallen world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Maybe not quite so explicit as things like the ruins of Arnor, but, you know, considering how much Tolkien... Loved trees. Absolutely. Um, the, the, the deforestation, deforestation has right. got to be something that he's seeing as, uh, as an example of how mm-hmm. this world has fallen. Yeah, absolutely. But then we get to Bombadil, and I'm going to go ahead and pick up there because here's some great stuff to talk about. Elrond says, But I had forgotten, Bombadil, if indeed this is still the same that walked the woods and hills long ago, and even then was older than the old. That was not then his name. Yarwine Benedar, we called him oldest and fatherless. But many another name he has since been given by other folk, Forn by the dwarves, Orald by northern men, and other names beside. He is a strange creature, but maybe I should have summoned him to our council. He would not have come, said Gandalf. Could we not still send messages to him and obtain his help? asked Aristor. It seems that he has a power even over the ring. 
No, I should not put it so, said Gandalf. Say rather that the ring has no power over him. He is his own master, but he cannot alter the ring itself nor break its power over others. And now he is withdrawn into a little land, within bounds that he has set, though none can see them, waiting perhaps for a change of days, and he will not step beyond them. But within those bounds, nothing seems to dismay him, said Aristor. Would he not take the ring and keep it there, forever harmless? No, said Gandalf, not willingly. He might do so if all the free folk of the world begged him, but he would not understand the need. And if he were given the ring, he would soon forget it, or most likely throw it away. Such things have no hold on his mind. He would be a most unsafe guardian, and that alone is answer enough. But in any case, said Glorfindel, to send the ring to him would only postpone the day of evil. He is far away. We could not now take it back to him unguessed, unmarked by any spy. And even if we could, soon or late the Lord of the Rings would learn of its hiding place, and would bend all his power towards it. Could that power be defied by Bombadil alone? I think not. I think that in the end, if all else is conquered, Bombadil will fall, last as he was first, and then night will come. Mm. That is one of those passages that I feel like people, we're all kind of constantly going back to, aren't we? Yeah. Talking about Tom and learning about about Tom Tom and the the interaction he has with the ring and who he is, what he is. Yeah. More about his nature. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I actually would like to start by going back to the beginning of that passage and doing a little uh, classic word nerdery, if I may. Oh, yeah, of course. We have to. Now, Hammond and Skull told us back when we first met Tom that Tolkien explained in an unpublished letter that Yarwine equals old young, Hmm. presumably because as far as anybody remembered, he had always looked much the same, old but very vigorous. And although he doesn't say this in that quote, I would add that Ben-Adar means fatherless, having no father. Right, right, right. As opposed to Ben-Adar, who... Presumably right. had a father. Right. <laughs> presumably, presumably she did. <laughs> Although I suspect she might have been descended from Yarwine Benadar because <laughs> it's the singing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Do you remember that line when Tom said, hit me with your best shot? I yeah. 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 And actually, she actually had a, a not so successful single with Hey Doll, Mary Doll. But um, <laughs> I was, I probably haven't decent. heard that one. It wasn't no. on MTV. No, it wasn't. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we digress. So, a little bit. But then in the nomenclature, we learn that these other two names that we get here are meant to be names in foreign tongues, not common speech. Right. Foreign is actually the Scandinavian word for belonging to ancient days. Hmm. Orald is an old English word for very ancient, evidently meant to represent the language of the Rohirrim and their kin. You know, that's as good a place as any to talk about another theory about Tom Bombadil that, frankly, we didn't get into when we had our council on him last season. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> I was surprised because we, we did get a lot of mail on this one. You know. A lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm speaking of the theory that Tom Bombadil is supposedly a stand-in for Professor Tolkien himself, a way of inserting himself into the story. Mm-hmm. And the so-called proof for this is the names Forn and Orald, because if you put them together, they're an anagram for for Ronald, as in Tom Bombadil is a stand-in for Ronald. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we got some mail on this one. And to be honest, this was a theory that I had read before we did our research for, what was that, episode 121 when we talked about Tom? We did not include it in that episode because, frankly, and I I may upset some people out there with this, uh, I frankly never put any stock in it. uh, And I didn't really think it was all that widely accepted. Apparently, more people than I thought (laughs) 
are attached mm-hmm. to it. So I am yeah. sorry to disappoint folks out there who like this theory, but I'm I'm just not buying it. And I've got a few reasons no. for that. The first reason is, as we've just discussed, Forn and Orald are names that actually have meaning on their own. They're not just made right. up anagrams. They're no. they're actual words in other Real languages. words, not Quenya words or, or right. Rohiric words. These are actual Real words in Old English and Old Norse. Yeah. Right, exactly. Secondly, Tolkien doesn't really tend to work in anagrams that much. No, he really doesn't. I personally can't think of any other place in the Legendarium where he uses anagrams as any kind of code or wordplay for anything. It's just just not his style. His wordplay is more sophisticated than that. It's based on translations and etymologies and things like that. Right, and and puns that you would only get if you knew three languages. Exactly, right. Another reason is it's really hard to find anything in the description of Tom Bombadil that that could even match Tolkien. I mean, okay, yeah. they both like poetry. That's really about it. Yeah, Tolkien wasn't so a tall does Pat man, Benatar. But, right, saying Pat Benatar is a stand-in for Tolkien. <laughs> no, or a stand-in for Tom Bombadil. Right. Um, you know, Tolkien, large and heavy, a long brown beard, blue eyes, a face as red as a ripe apple, but Christian. Uh, no, 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 none of that fits Tolkien. No, I, I'm not seeing the resemblance, honestly. No, and even if I did. Honestly, I would say so what? I mean, right. The, the truth is lots of Tolkien's characters have some of Tolkien in them. Baron has a lot of Tolkien in him. Yes, he uh, does. Faramir does too, of course. Uh, so mm-hmm. do most hobbits. I, I think yeah. I could sooner argue that any one of those characters is Tolkien writing himself into the story, so to speak, more so than Tom Bombadil. Right. And so that's why I'm not really buying that aspect of it. And frankly, none of this answers the question, the main question most people care about when they talk about Tom Bombadil, which is what Tom is and what purpose right. does he serve in the story. Saying he's a stand-in for Tolkien really doesn't get you any closer to, okay, well, what is he in Middle-earth? And okay, what is he doing there? Right, so right. I, I have to call this theory a dead end. I, I, I kind of question it from the very beginning. So mm-hmm. sorry if I'm disappointing anyone out there, but that's why we didn't talk about it more back when we were talking about That's Tom. exactly right. That's exactly right. I wanted to throw in a little bit extra, though. You talked about Faramir, who I've always kind of seen, not so much as a stand-in, but he's the guy I always think of as if Tolkien Maybe put more like in Tolkien the story. Than others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's a, a letter that he writes. He says that as far as any character is like me, it is mm-hmm. Faramir. Uh, yep. I, I'm trying to remember exactly where that is. Uh, it's letter 180. So that's that's okay. worth looking up if you're interested in that. But just wanted to mention that. Yeah. So interesting, though, that, uh, you know, Elrond, hmm, maybe we should have invited him. I mean, after all, Galadriel's seat is available. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's a no-show, so we could have invited him. Oh, yeah. goodness. You know, we got some questions in, in Barlaman's bag. These didn't make it into the mailbag segment, but we actually got some questions. You know, why is the council being held at Elrond's house instead of in Lothlorien, where Galadriel could actually make it. Well, probably easier to get there, number one. And number two, it's just where everybody ended up. Remember, this wasn't, this was a spontaneous council. Right. You know, you, you were called here, though I didn't call you. Yeah. Uh, from distant lands, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. And hat tip to listener Lori on that, because I, I, as I'm looking at the mailbag here, I see it was Lori mm-hmm. who wrote in with that most recently. Um, you know, she said like, well, Galadriel is older and wiser, isn't she? And I think we had that conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. An episode. She's older ago. for sure. Yeah. But later in this episode, you know, we'll talk about the fact that it's not strength or wisdom that accomplishes this task. It's going to be done by mortals. And I think going back to something we talked about with Corey a couple of episodes ago, one episode 142, you know, Galadriel mm-hmm. is sort of inaccessible to mortals. She's kind of 
That's true. She's standoffish. She's kind of wild and perilous to mortals. And I think she is like you say, it's, it, it was they were called here. They were all called to Rivendell. And um, and I don't know that Galadriel would have had the same effect on this council that uh, that mm-hmm. Elrond has, which is to be mm-hmm. very accessible and kind of give the council that people need to get stuff done. Anyway, a little digression there, but just something. Not I had that in my he mind ends up being the best leader of committee the council chair, in terms of no. committee chair, right? Handling the actual meeting. No, <laughs> but it ends up working out for the best. So anyway, forgive the digression, but it's uh, just a fun question I've had on my mind. Oh, absolutely. Now, we should probably go ahead and look a little bit at Tom. And, you know, we talked about how this is a great passage for looking back at who Tom is. Tom and the power of the ring, Gandalf, you know, he's being his own, he, he is his own master. He can't change the ring yeah. or break its power, but he can at least prevent it from having power over him. But is that enough? Right. And I'm not really sure it is because, no. you know, he's got such a small sphere of influence. Right. And he just, he would not be the person to trust with the ring. No. It would be a bad idea to give it to him. He'd forget it or, you know, toss it. You know, we've we talked about it the, to like Salvation Army or Goodwill or something. Like that. <laughs> right. I don't need this anymore. I'm going to hand right. this off. To, yeah, How did I get else. this? Who gave this to me? We talked about, uh, again, back in another Questions After Nightfall episode, we talked about the good side and the bad side of his particular kind of pacifism, where he's just sort of, you know, kind of checking out. He's just sort of detaching from the whole thing. And yeah. that is not what we need here. We need somebody no, who's no, going no. to be responsible with the ring and who is going to, to handle it the way it deserves to be handled. Absolutely. And of course, he still doesn't have, you know, the ultimate power. He can't defy Sauron forever. True. So, yeah. you know, Sauron's eventual victory over the rest of the world would eventually lead to, to Bombadil's downfall. Right. And, and we see that that's, that's the case at other places too. You know, there's power to resist here at Imladris, at the Grey Havens and in Lorien, but mm-hmm. not forever. Right. An interesting observation here, though. There are rings, rings of power at Imladris and at Lorien, but not the Havens. What gives them the power to defy Sauron? I mean, I guess Tom doesn't have a ring and he can defy Sauron, but I'm curious, what what made Elrond lump in the Havens with uh, these two places that are really protected by uh, elven rings of power? That's an interesting question. I mean, the Grey Havens had been protected by a ring of power mm-hmm. until Gandalf yeah. showed up and yeah. Círdan gave the ring to him, but... Is there a lingering effect of the ring? Did Círdan give it to him or did Gandalf walk away with it? I'm just kidding. <laughs> what really happened at the Grey Havens, Gandalf, right. if that is your real name, which it's not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a good question. Is there a residual effect of the ring that's, that's preservative and protective? I, I tend to think not. No. Maybe it's just Círdan himself. Yeah. Serious Círdan's wisdom. I mean, he's been essential around a awesomeness. very long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Remember, Kirdan, mm-hmm. the shipwright. Remember when yes, uh, we exactly. were talking with... Whoa, you know, who's that? Oh, that really, that must mean there's something really important here. Yeah, That guy's cool. Yeah, he is. Yeah. So what's the conclusion? Well, we've got to either send it over the sea or destroy it. That's the initial conclusion. Hot potato, get rid of it or destroy right. it. And right. we can't destroy it. We don't have the means to destroy it here. No, no, we can't do that. So we've got to send it back. Oh, wait. The Valar aren't going to take it. And no. that's, that's really interesting. No, they're going to mark it return to sender, you know? <laughs> have Arendel do a drop on his next flight. Right, line. exactly. No, yep. this does not belong here. Return to right. center, yep. And that's an interesting question that I think some readers struggle with. Why won't the Valar accept it? Oh, yeah. But, I mean, it's not their responsibility, is it? No, They've, no. We've been talking about this since the Silmarillion. They meddled early on in the First Age. And while it wasn't, you know, completely disastrous... No. They did cause some problems by... Could have been better. Right, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. by meddling in the affairs of the Eldar. And we do kind of see this gradual pull away from the world by the Valar. Not that they're gone, but they're not going to interact as directly. They're not going to 
well, I should say they're not going to act as directly in the affairs of Middle Earth no, as they used to. No, absolutely. And not only is it not really the Valar's time, it's not really time for elves anymore either. This really is the time for the dominion of men. And yes, so we see that uh, that transition of power that we've talked about is kind of one of our one of our less frequent themes in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. that that's really what's going on here. It's you know this is this is a mortal problem. This this is something that mortals need to deal with. Well, at least incarnates. incarnates, right? Because it is it is an elvish problem, and and even it's a Sauron problem. But Sauron's now a, a, really isn't he an incarnate Maya? I mean, he's bound to the to the earth the way. Um, I would think he must be the way that Morgoth, the way was Melian was, you know, when she, when, yeah, when she bound herself to the earth with the. Uh, well, Melian we know was bound through childbirth and things like that. That's true. Yeah. Um, Morgoth and Sauron, I think Sauron's probably more like Morgoth in terms of you know disseminating his power into things, mostly the ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that I think that does bind him. Yeah. Yeah, I bet it does. I I know we've talked about that, and I, I'm pretty sure that's where we landed, and there was probably mm-hmm. very strong evidence for it, but I can't remember it at the moment. So. <laughs> it's somewhere out there in one of the linguistic oh, yeah. essays. There's some but stuff definitely in it's uh, stuff. you know it, it's a problem for Middle Earth. It's a problem mm-hmm. for those who are incarnate in Middle Earth, and it's not it's we're not going to take it. It's not ours. It's not our yep. responsibility. And of course, we can also speculate about the risk. Yeah, the risk of what happens if somebody here gets seduced by the ring. So no, we don't mm-hmm. want it, and they can't right. destroy it because again, it has to be destroyed in Mount Doom. So. Right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and have you pick up there because we've already concluded then that we can't destroy it here and we can't send it back to the Valor. So what's next, Glorfindel? Okay. Who, who else has a, an idea for what to do right. with this thing? Then, said Glorfindel, let us cast it into the deeps and so make the lies of Saruman come true. For it is clear now that even at the council his feet were already on a crooked path. He knew that the ring was not lost forever, but wished us to think so, for he began to lust for it for himself. Yet often lies, truth is hidden. In the sea it would be safe. Not safe forever, said Gandalf. There are many things in the deep waters, and seas and lands may change. And it is not our part here to take thought only for a season, or for a few lives of men, or for a passing age of the world. We should seek a final end of this menace, even if we do not hope to make one. Hmm. And that we shall not find on the roads to the sea, said Galdor. If the return to Yarwine be thought too dangerous, then flight to the sea is now fraught with gravest peril. My heart tells me that Sauron will expect us to take the western way when he learns what has befallen. He soon will. The nine have been unhorsed indeed, but that is but a respite ere they find new steeds and swifter. Hmm. Only the waning might of Gondor stands now between him and a march in power along the coasts into the north. And if he comes, assailing the white towers and the havens, hereafter the elves may have no escape from the lengthening shadows of Middle-earth. So two things jump out at me in that. First, uh, he's only thinking about the elves escaping. <laughs> I mean, he's an elf, so that's his only concern. Well, if he comes and does this, I mean, I know it'll ruin the lives of hobbits and men and dwarves, but then the elves can't get away. <laughs> it's like my first thought. Is it that or is it just he's afraid of making the situation worse? You know, hmm. for, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, and I don't know that I have a good response for it. You're probably right. But, <laughs> what you know, just it's kind of like. Just get used to it, Sean. Just get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me like it's kind of a, and not only would all this bad stuff happen, That's but also true. the elves would have no escape. The elves wouldn't even have the out that they have now. Right. I know true. it's it's not much better. I'm not doing no. a good job of defending. But him. the <laughs> other thing that jumped out at me was hilarious. Was was uh, only the waning might have gone, and you can hear Boromir go, "What? What are you saying? Uh, yeah, what? what? Excuse me. <laughs> Heard that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, Who are you calling oh, waning? Man. 
Wayne this, pal. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. He's yeah. A, yeah. Oh, well, of course, yeah. he has something to say about that. All right, Gondor wanes, but Gondor stands. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Gandalf's line is particularly intriguing, though. This idea that, look, it's not our job to solve the problem for, for now, for this generation, for the next 25, 50 years, or even for the next thousand years. You realize we're talking about, you know, some very long-term stuff mm-hmm. here. He's talking about the, the lands changing. And of course, we know that happened with Beleriand right. uh, going under the, under the waves, with Numenor going under the waves, with the coastlines getting completely redrawn. Right. So Gandalf's aware that this kind of thing can happen. And he's thinking that's about not good thousands enough. of years from now. Yeah. That is not good enough. None of us will be around then. I mean, unless Elrond decides to stick around forever because he can. But, you know, we're not likely to be around. Right. But that certainly takes on a different, a different significance in a world filled with immortal people. You know, in a world with elves yeah. and, and those who don't die. You know, the incarnate Maiar, for instance. I mean, they can die, but not of old age. Mm-hmm. They are going to have that perspective that, that man would never have. That recognition that getting rid of it for 5,000 years even isn't enough. Right. We have to destroy it, even if we don't have a chance of destroying it. Yeah, that's a really good point. For men, it's easy to kick that can way down yeah. the road because for us, it is way down the road. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not our children or our grandchildren or our great, 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 great chan- grandchildren who are going right. to see that. It's going to be, I don't even we'll know. We'll all be gone by then. It's, that's, right. that's history of the world scale of time. Right. That's like the, the ancient Egyptians building the pyramids and wondering what we'll think of them. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So because men have such a, a short perspective on the world, Mm-hmm. That seems like a long time to us, but for people like Gandalf and Elrond and Glorfindel, you're right. It's not, not a lot of time enough. at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So Boromir, of course, his response. And then Elrond has the clear conclusion at this point. We now have to do something that none of us really want to talk about. We got to send the ring to the fire. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm going to go ahead and pick up. Silence fell again. Frodo, even in that fair house, looking out upon a sunlit valley filled with the noise of clear waters, felt a dead darkness in his heart. Boromir stirred, and Frodo looked at him. He was fingering his great horn and frowning. At length, he spoke. I do not understand all this, he said. Saruman is a traitor, but did he not have a glimpse of wisdom? Why do you speak ever of hiding and destroying? Why should we not think that the great ring has come into our hands to serve us? in the very hour of need. Wielding it, the free lords of the free may surely defeat the enemy. That is what he most fears, I deem. The men of Gondor are valiant, and they will never submit, but they may be beaten down. Valor needs first strength, and then a weapon. Let the ring be your weapon if it has such power as you say. Take it, and go forth to victory. Alas, no, said Elrond. We cannot use the ruling ring. That we now know too well. It belongs to Sauron and was made by him alone, and is altogether evil. Its strength, Boromir, is too great for anyone to wield at will, save only those who have already a great power of their own. But for them it holds an even deadlier peril. The very desire of it corrupts the heart. Consider Saruman. If any of the wise should with this ring overthrow the lord of Mordor, using his own arts, he would then set himself on Sauron's throne, and yet another dark lord would appear. And that is another reason why the ring should be destroyed. As long as it is in the world, it will be a danger even to the wise. For nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. I fear to take the ring to hide it. I will not take the ring to wield it. 
Nor I, said Gandalf. Boromir looked at them doubtfully, but he bowed his head. So be it, he said. Then in Gondor we must trust to such weapons as we have. And at the least, while the wise ones guard this ring, we will fight on. Mayhap the sword that was broken may still stem the tide, if the hand that wields it has inherited not an heirloom only, but the sinews of the kings of men. Who can tell, said Aragorn, but we will put it to the test one day. May the day not be too long delayed, said Boromir. And we'll just leave it there. Man. Mm, Boromir, mm, mm. he's... <laughs> I know, Boromir. Boromir's a bit pessimistic here. I mean, I understand. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying... Of course. I'm not saying he shouldn't be, but... They're under pressure, man. I mean, you know, Mordor's yeah. at their door, more so than with any other, you know, of the free peoples. Yeah. So... Yeah, but let's go back to the beginning and, and talk through it. We're kind of getting ahead sure, of ourselves sure, sure. a little bit, I guess. Yeah, well, we start with that dead darkness. I don't know about you, but I think I'd always read that as a dread darkness, but this is even worse, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I can't, I can't remember how I've read that on, on previous readings, but yeah, a dead darkness, there's uh, wow. Yeah, there's kind of a cold despair in that phrase. Emptiness, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. But Boromir here, doing the Boromir thing, look. <laughs> yeah. It is a gift. A gift to the foes of Mordor. Yeah. I mean, Saruman may be evil, but he's not stupid. Why don't we use no, this thing? You know, that's, exactly. That's what Sauron is afraid of. Oh, yeah, he's of course He's afraid he of us taking this weapon and using it. And he is. He's right about that. That is exactly what Sauron fears the most. We know that throughout the text. Uh, they use that to their advantage later on, but he's certainly never considering the destruction of the ring as something that these people would do. Nobody would do that. Who would destroy? Who would destroy this, destroy this precious power? Thing, yeah. Right. The mere idea of destroying the ring hasn't even begun to consider the possibility of speculating about crossing his mind. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well, you know. I like Thank that. you, Douglas Adams, for that little uh, I like help that. there. So Elrond. And then Elrond. I, I love Elrond. He's like, well, I was going to say mansplaining. He's half splaining things to Boromir here. <laughs> He's there like, you go. no, 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 you don't get it, man. It's altogether evil. Strength is too great. You know, he goes through the list of all these things. But I, Dude, have you been listening to any of this? I know. Have History you been paying attention at all? Yeah. At all. Have you listened to anything we've said? But yeah. I really like this nugget that's buried in here that nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so. This mm -hmm. is really this reminder that evil itself is not a created thing. It is a corruption of a created thing. And that's really this distinctly um, Augustinian view. You know, creation is good. Evil is a freely chosen negation, a, a willful rejection of the original state of perfection. It's an, it's an interesting little insight into Tolkien's mm -hmm. philosophy here. Yeah, and to illuminate this, I, I want to go to letter 153 for a bit. This is the draft to, to Peter Hastings, the Catholic bookstore owner. Right, right. In it, Tolkien writes that Sauron was, of course, not evil in origin. He was a spirit corrupted by the prime Dark Lord, the prime sub-creative rebel Morgoth. He was given an opportunity of repentance when Morgoth was overcome, but could not face the humiliation of recantation and mm. suing for pardon. And so his temporary turn to good and benevolence, and he's got quotes around that, ended in a greater relapse until he became the main representative of evil of later ages. Right. But at the beginning of the Second Age, he was still beautiful to look at or could still assume a beautiful visible shape and was not indeed wholly evil, not unless all reformers quotes again, who want to hurry up with reconstruction and reorganization are wholly evil, even before pride and the lust to exert their will eat them up. Hmm. Well, that is, that is fascinating. 
mm-hmm. that even then at the beginning of the second age, he wasn't wholly evil. There was still some good in him, mm-hmm. like Darth Vader. <laughs> there you go. When faced with his opportunity to uh, slay the emperor, yeah, he, he couldn't do it. Nope, could not. No. And of course, then you get uh, Elrond saying, oh, and by the way, I'm not going to want anything to do with this ring. So no, 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 no. Keep it away from me. Gandalf chiming in very yeah. quickly. Uh, me yeah. either. Nope. Yeah, don't look, look at, at me. somebody else. But then we get that classic uh, sword that was broken, sinews of the kings of men, which, mm-hmm. by the way, of course, I did inherit, just so you know. Of course. We're not putting it to the test today. I, I can't believe you had to point out that you didn't write that. But, of course, nobody believes you do. <laughs> I, yeah, no. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not looking that closely at your sinews. No, no, no. I, I don't want you to. Um, but anyway. <laughs> Classic put it to the test line. That That's a great piece. And I've got something from author of the century from Tom Shippey on that that I want to look into. He says, and I'm going to try again, as always, not to do this in Shippey's voice. Good luck. There is, of course, a certain competition between the two. For if mm-hmm. Aragorn were to be what he said, then he would displace Boromir from his position as steward-to-be. The clash of styles shows up when Boromir, for the second time, expresses doubt about what he has been told. Mayhap the sword that was broken may still stem the tide, if the hand that wields it has inherited not an heirloom only, but the sinews of the kings of men. The doubt is potentially insulting, but Aragorn responds to it easily, almost chattily. Who can tell? But we will put it to the test one day. However, though this is said easily, it contains within it a heroic formula often found in Old English. Now is the time, the heroes cry to one another, to put our boasts to the test. Mm. And in fact, Shippy said a little bit more about this in The Road to Middle-Earth, when he actually identified an old English saying, Alfwina's new may kunian hua chenesi, from the Battle of Malden, meaning now who is bold can be put to the test. I'm not bold enough to take the old English. That's why I gave that to you. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Absolutely. I do love the, but again, I love that Shippy has also picked up on something we've been talking about, which is this constant tete-a-tete between Boromir and yes. Aragorn. You know, yeah, the the little side hope. conversations between mm-hmm. Aragorn and Boromir while the rest yeah. of the council is doing its business. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Well, now, before we get to Glowin's proposal, we want to remind you about our sponsor here at the Prancing Pony Podcast. Yeah. Well, you know what's a sneaky good holiday gift this year? Super comfy Bombas socks. Now, most people don't ask for socks. I don't know. I've ever asked for socks for Christmas, but <laughs> that's only because they haven't worn Bombas. Yeah. Bombas socks are really soft, like made with the softest cotton in the world soft. Yeah. Now, their socks are built with arch support that isn't too tight. It's really like a nice hug for your feet. And you do a lot of different things. So Bombas makes a lot of different socks. Mm -hmm. Dress socks for work, performance socks for working out, and even limited edition holiday socks. My favorite are the merino wool socks. They're like magic. Soft, warm, naturally moisture-wicking, and never itchy or rough. So you know that person who's just a gift enigma, completely impossible to shop for? Well, Bombas is the gift that even that person will love. Everybody will. So go to bombas.com slash PPP and get 20% off on any purchase during their big holiday sale, November 18th through December 5th. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash P-P-P for 20%. Bombas.com slash P-P-P. And thanks again to Bombas for partnering with us on this. So let's go ahead and get into Glowin's proposal for what to do with the ring. Sean, if you could pick up there, that'd be great. Okay. Still, it might be well for all, said Glowin the dwarf, if all these strengths were joined and the powers of each were used in league. Other rings there may be, less treacherous, that might be used in our need. 
The seven are lost to us, if Balin has not found the Ring of Thror, which was the last. Not has been heard of it since Thror perished in Moria. Indeed, I may now reveal that it was partly in hope to find that ring that Balin went away. Balin will find no ring in Moria, said Gandalf. Thror gave it to Thrain his son, but not Thrain to Thorin. It was taken with torment from Thrain in the dungeons of Dol Guldur. I came too late. Ah, alas, cried Glowen. When will the day come of our revenge? But still there are the three. What of the three rings of the elves? Very mighty rings, it is said. Do not the elf lords keep them? Yet they too were made by the dark lord long ago. Are they idle? I see elf lords here. Will they not say? The elves returned no answer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is just, oh, wow. What, what, what do you say? What do you say? Right. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing about this. But you can tell that's where he's going in the beginning. You know, let's join together to use our combined strengths. I mean, we don't have any rings. We don't have rings seven, around, right? but yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Gandalf's it, Interesting that that's why you know, Balin went in the first place to Moria, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very interesting uh, that that was actually one of the main reasons uh, why he went. Mm-hmm. But then Gandalf has to say, well, I hate to break it to you. Um it's that not is there. unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, it's not there anymore. Well, and that's okay, Glowen's thinking, because he's not really thinking about that ring anyway. He's really thinking no. about the three. And right. it's it's interesting here because he's he's got some knowledge here, but he's also got some misinformation. He's Oh yeah. You know, he knows the three are powerful rings, but right. he thinks they were made by the Dark Lord himself. Right. And he's a bit confrontational about the whole affair, isn't he? Yes, he is. And I can't blame him. I mean, you know, no. the elves are not, they're not always, uh, they're a little recalcitrant to help others sometimes, it seems. Yeah. That, uh, that's especially true. from the viewpoint of a, of a dwarf. Following quickly on Galdor's comment about like, hey, and we won't be able to escape. <laughs> right. And Colin's <laughs> like, we never get to escape. Can you, you know, stick around, help us We're out? We're not worried bit? about you guys. We won't be able to escape. So Glowen's given a little back. Like, uh, by right. the way, don't you guys have these rings, even though they were made by Sauron? And right. Elrond's like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Let me correct that. I love that. Uh, it is not permitted to speak of them, but I am going to tell you this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, if you've signed an NDA, Elrond, in which you are not supposed to discuss, you know, you cannot confirm nor deny the existence of such rings, nor can you talk about them or what they do or do not do, <laughs> then you're in violation, even if you're not telling Glowen and the rest of the council who holds them and where they are. Yeah. I mean, that's really, that's the only thing he doesn't say here, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he just true. doesn't, doesn't say, well, I've got one and Gandalf's got right. one and that gal who wouldn't show up to our meeting, she's got one too. But don't, yeah, but don't <laughs> worry. They're not idle. And by the way, weren't you listening? Didn't you hear? Did you not yeah, hear me, Glowen? I gave you some history of this. <laughs> they weren't made by Sauron. The, the did you not hear me, Glowen? Like if he was tweeting that, he'd put like hand clap emojis between each word. <laughs> you know, did you not hear me? That is awesome. Yeah, you're right. The three were not made or even touched by Sauron. But yeah, they're, they're not idle. Yeah. And but they're not weapons of war or conquest. No, that's not, they're not. That's not th- what they're they just do. they're protective. No. Yeah. They're protective. So again, we could hold out. We could lump all three together, get Galadriel and Gandalf and me, and we could all hang out here in Rivendell and, you know, put a nice little bubble around the place, but that's not gonna help. I mean, that's that's all we can do. Right. He does get to a little speculation that I think is interesting, that the talk about the future of the three rings and how really we don't know. We just don't know. Some people think that. Well, then they become free and we could do, you know, all sorts of good things. But, but I believe that when it's gone, the three are going to fail 
and these things that we've accomplished with it are going to go away. That's, that's hard. That's hard to hear. That is hard to hear. And I love the uncertainty. You know, mm-hmm. it, yeah. it, it reminds you that the elves really didn't know what kind of power they were unleashing when they made no. these ranks. And yeah, I know Elrond was not, you know, he wasn't one of the Gwaithi Myrdine. He's not like no. one of the engineers who worked on this project, but still the, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's nothing in elven lore that says this is what's going to happen. Right. Because when they made them, they didn't know that Sauron was making the one ring that's true. that would dominate them. You know, yeah, they had no idea. True. So it's all speculation. So even they have to speculate. So we're in good company, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. Our, our speculation, sadly, is not informed by thousands of years of well, no. life and experience. But No, it's not. And I don't know that feels I want to like it sometimes. thousands of years. <laughs> no, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do love Glorfindel's uh, brief response here before we get to what I'm going to read next. This idea that, look, even if those things are going to go away, we're willing to take that chance mm. if this means that we can destroy Sauron. That's yeah. really big. That is big. Uh, and, and this coming from an elf who has seen some mighty things. Mm-hmm. So to understand that those fair things will fade and be forgotten, this is a guy who watched Gondolin fall and burn. Mm-hmm. So he knows what it's like to see fair things fade and be forgotten. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really interesting point to juxtapose against the idea we were just talking about, which is that the elves are a little bit recalcitrant to help, to help others mm-hmm. sometimes. That's true. They are prepared to make a big sacrifice here. Yeah, they are. I mean, it's a sacrifice they're going to have to make someday anyway, but they're willing to accept that, look, now now is that time. We, this, yeah. is, this is the end of our time in Middle-earth. Mm-hmm. And we're ready to let these rings, you know, fade and let all this preservation that we wrought with them go away. Yeah, pretty amazing. But at the end of that conversation, we still realize we're not any closer to solving this. And, <laughs> and, and Arrestor, who, who kind of, I mean, sometimes he's the voice of reason, but frankly, he's more often a cynic in these conversations. He actually gets it oh, again. Right. And well... He does get very cynical here. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and just read and we'll we'll get that. Thus we return once more to the destroying of the ring, said Arrestor, and yet we come no nearer. What strength have we for the finding of the fire in which it was made? That is the path of despair, of folly, I would say, if the long wisdom of Elrond did not forbid me. Despair or folly, said Gandalf. It is not despair, but despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. It is wisdom to recognize necessity when all other courses have been weighed, though as folly it may appear to those who cling to false hope. Well, let folly be our cloak, a veil before the eyes of the enemy. For he is very wise and weighs all things to a nicety in the scales of his malice. But the only measure that he knows is desire, desire for power, and so he judges all hearts. Into his heart the thought will not enter, that any will refuse it, that having the ring we may seek to destroy it. If we seek this, we shall put him out of reckoning. At least for a while, said Elrond, the road must be trod, but it will be very hard, and neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon it. This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong. Yet such is off the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Such a great exchange. Mm. Oh, I love that. You know, I staggered the reading so that I got that one, right? I figured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you I did. wanted to give you Bilbo's stuff because you do a great Bilbo. But Oh, thank you. I, I like Bilbo. This is such important stuff. And, of course, we've come back to this phrase, this idea of despair over and over again. We've talked about yeah. what is despair and it's only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. 
Mm-hmm. And under virtually any circumstances, you really don't see the end beyond all doubt. You can't see beyond the moment you're in. And even if it looks like total doom, we're going to fail, bad things are going to happen while the battle of the Pelennor fields, and now up come the ships of the bad guys, we're totally doomed. Ah, you catastrophe. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. really what despair denies is the possibility of you catastrophe. Yeah. So. And Gandalf is just summing that all up very nicely mm-hmm. here in his response. Much to more nicely story. than I do. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, he's good at that. He's Gandalf. He I, and I love that he's, you know, wisdom can look like folly, right? Yeah. Restor thinks that this is the path of folly. Gandalf says, no, this is the path of wisdom. And right. we're going to use that confusion. We're going to lean into that confusion because <laughs> tomorrow another phrase for a committee meeting right 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 but uh yeah i mean because sauron this is this is a completely alien idea to him that anybody right. would want to destroy the ring of course he's going to see it as folly that's partly partly his failure to understand what the good guys how the good guys mm-hmm. think and it's also yeah. just his own hubris oh yeah he thinks that it would be that it would be folly and that oh they're completely nuts to do this right but, that's going to be their cloak. And, and that is going to cloak the actual, the wisdom of this path. And mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. And I love yeah, that really because, is. because if what looks like folly might actually be wisdom, then maybe what looks like despair to a restor is actually hope, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. really, this is the one true hope they have yeah. if they're not to cling to Even if it's hope. a slim hope, it is the it hope is they a slim, have. Yeah. And it is a slim hope. Yeah. Of course it is. And Elrond even explains, look, it's not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be so hard that it's not going to be your strength or your wisdom that accomplishes it. Anybody who has the courage to do this can do it right? with, with as much hope, which is to say virtually none, but some very small sliver of hope. Right. And then, of course, that classic line about the wheels of the world. And the wheels hands. of the world, that is one of, those, one of those classic lines. And I want to get to that, and I want to get to what that says about ennoblement. But before I do that, I, I don't have this in my notes, but I'm pulling it up here because I want to give a hat tip to one of our Reddit users. This is uh, uh-huh. from user Gonburigan who actually pointed out that Elrond's comment here about neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon this road, that actually echoes the exchange between Gandalf and Frodo in Shadow of the Past. Yeah. When Frodo says, why was I chosen? And Gandalf says, such questions cannot be answered. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate. Right. So power or wisdom there mirrors strength nor wisdom here. Right. And so we see... Once again, that, yeah, okay, Frodo doesn't have strength or wisdom, but that's okay because those are not the traits that are going to be needed here. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's not what, what's going to win this, you know, win this quest for us. Right. Also worth right. noting that Gandalf had this whole thing figured out way back in that chapter, and he already knew that destroying the ring was the best thing to do. Yeah. Because they right, actually talked did. about it. I don't know if that was Tolkien kind of going back and inserting that later or if it was just, he I'd wanted to us to see that Gandalf the, uh, figured this the, out a long time history of the Lord ago. of the Rings in, yeah. um, in those middle volumes of uh, history middle. They have to look yeah. that up, maybe for postscript or something. That'd be worth looking into. But yeah, let's get back to that idea of the small hands and the eyes of the great, because um, mm-hmm. again, that is that ennoblement theme again, one that Tolkien yeah. said was one of the main themes of Lord of the Rings. That's right. In fact, here's a quote from our favorite letter, number one fifty one, to Milton Waldman, that makes that point really clearly. Tolkien says, "This last great tale, coming down from myth and legend to the earth, is seen mainly through the eyes of hobbits." It thus becomes, in fact, anthropocentric. But through hobbits, not men, so-called, because the last tale is to exemplify most clearly a recurrent theme, the place in world politics of the unforeseen and unforeseeable acts of will and deeds of virtue 
of the apparently small, ungreat, forgotten in the places of the wise and great, good as well as evil. A moral of the whole, after the primary symbolism of the ring as the will to mere power, seeking to make itself objective by physical force and mechanism, and so also inevitably by lies, is the obvious one that without the high and noble, the simple and vulgar is utterly mean, and without the simple and ordinary, the noble and heroic is meaningless. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah. I, I just, there's just. I know. Mind-boggling. I, I, that letter, there's so much richness yeah. in that letter. I almost want to sit here and unpack this for 15 minutes. You really could. But... We could take an entire episode to unpack this one line, one yeah. sentence. Sadly. We can't. We, we, do, but... <laughs> we do not have that kind of time. Probably don't have the wisdom to do it properly. But, but no. there's a very clear, very clear balance here, you know. Oh, yeah. Between between the high and noble and the simple and ordinary. And, and right. isn't that, if I can say nothing else about it here, isn't that sort of the magic that makes the Lord of the Rings so great? I think so. It's, yeah, it's the hobbitiness with the epicness. And right. it's the, it's the, the hobbitiness that, that gives it meaning. It's those, the, the bucalia of the Shire that mm, gives it meaning. Is yes. that a word, bucalia? If it isn't, then we understand what you mean. It's the bucolic yeah. nature. The bucolic so. nature of it. The, the bucolic right. Arcadia. I think I might have been trying to combine those two words. But, bucolic Arcadia, um, yes. It's, uh, it, it's that stuff that makes the noble and heroic meaningful. And mm -hmm. wow, just beautiful words by the professor. And, and I think really Absolutely. sums up a lot of what makes the story work. And, and you know, admittedly, that sentence is hard to read because of the parenthetical about the symbolism of the ring. But that last bit, that the a moral of the whole is the obvious one that with, and he thinks it's obvious, which I love, that without the high and noble, the simple is utterly mean. And then without the simple and ordinary, the noble is meaningless. Right. Such a great vision of the balance between the two. Like you said, you really, you have to have both. It gives so much more meaning to mm -hmm. what Aragorn and... Theoden and Gandalf and Elrond are all doing from here all the way through to the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Yeah. Because we can look at Sam. You right. Know? Yeah, exactly. But Sam on his own? You know, eh, without any of that stuff? Not, not as interesting a story. He's, no, he's utter, no, utterly no. mean, you know? Which doesn't mean, yeah, I think, by, by, the way, by what you mean, mean, it's average. Right, exactly. Ordinary. Just, yeah. it, it, that's what it is. It's just ordinary. Yeah. Uh, which on its own is not going to make a story, so. Yeah. And, and that's a, I think it's a good answer for people who have trouble with the simple Arcadian stuff in the first, you know, the first, yes, book, the, yes, the sentient I, fox I so. and all that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. we, we always talk about this. That's sort of the before picture and that, that is right. kind of what gives meaning to the epic stuff. Yeah. We need to have that frame of reference to understand the value of what's being yeah. done yep. by the epic stuff. Yeah. Well, I said a little bit ago that I really like your Bilbo and that I, did that passage so that you would take the next one. So why don't you go ahead and do that for us? I will do that. No pressure. No pressure at all, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> very well, very well, Master Elrond, said Bilbo suddenly. Say no more. <laughs> Wink's as good as a nudge to a fly. <laughs> I know you're Say going no there too. More. Say no more. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Say no more. It is plain enough what you are pointing at. Bilbo the silly hobbit started this affair, and Bilbo had better finish it, or himself. I was very comfortable here and getting on with my book. If you want to know, I am just writing an ending for it. I had thought of putting, and he lived happily ever afterwards to the end of his days. It is a good ending, and none the worse for having been used before. 
Now I shall have to alter that. It does not look like coming true. And anyway, there will evidently have to be several more chapters if I live to write them. It is a frightful nuisance. When ought I to start? <laughs> Boromir looked in surprise at Bilbo. But the laughter died on his lips when he saw that all the others regarded the old hobbit with grave respect. Mm. Only Glowen smiled, but his smile came from old memories. Of course, my dear Bilbo, said Gandalf. If you had really started this affair, you might be expected to finish it. But you know well enough now that starting is too great a claim for any, and that only a small part is played in great deeds by any hero. You need not bow, though the word was meant, and we do not doubt that under jest you are making a valiant offer, but one beyond your strength, Bilbo. You cannot take this thing back. It is passed on. If you need my advice any longer, I should say that your part is ended, unless as a recorder. Finish your book, and leave the ending unaltered. There is still hope for it. But get ready to write a sequel when they come back. Mm. You wonder if, uh, <laughs> if Tolkien himself wrote that line and go, oh, does that mean I'm going to have to write a sequel? <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I, and I wonder, is so is Bilbo finished writing There and Back Again at this point? He's talking about writing, finishing There mm -hmm. and Back Again, right? And is the sequel yeah. Lord of the Rings? That's the thing. He really is going to have to write the sequel. Yeah. 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 This is that sequel, or right? Is, yeah. Or is Tolkien thinking he's going to have to write yet another sequel to this? <laughs> to this to book. when they get back, to right. when they come back. Right. No, I, th I think when they come back means now he can figure out what happened in that story. So he's going to be right. writing a sequel to There right. and Back exactly. Again. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the hope inherent in that, you know? Oh, yeah. It's, it's still going to be okay. Things are still going to end happily ever after. Right. But you're going to need a sequel. You're going to need more pages. Yeah. Well, you're going to need a bigger book. That's exactly what I was thinking. You're going to need a bigger book. There's your Jaws reference right there. Yep. There you go. I also like the, the reaction that we get. Everybody really respected oh, yeah. Bilbo for standing up and doing this. I mean, Boromir yeah. was about to giggle and snicker and like, oh, you know, what's this little three oh, and a half Oh, who's this little old doing? guy? Yeah, exactly. Right. And thankfully, he didn't make a fool of himself and start guffawing out loud. He, he realized, oh, oh, everybody's looking at him with grave respect. Yeah, this is mm -hmm. pretty serious. I kind of like the idea that somebody noticed it. Either Bilbo noticed it or Frodo or Sam noticed it because it made it into the book. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> that he did this. Yeah. So, but instead of like anybody calling him out right there, it's just, it just makes it into the official record of this moment. Right. Poor <laughs> so Boromir. Posterity knows that Boromir was about to laugh, but he didn't. And, no, you're right. and that at least it says a lot about him, you know? Well, yeah, he can, he can read a room is what it says. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> really. I wish my kids could. I, boy, yeah. I digress. You do. <laughs> don't get me, you don't do. get me no, on I that. No, I won't. So, you know, Bilbo, Bilbo recognizes that Gandalf's right. I love his line though. As your unpleasant advice has been good. I wonder if this isn't bad advice, but you know what? Mm. You're right. I'm, I'm done. Yeah, uh, but right. what do you mean by they? Hmm. You know, and, and that's what we have to decide. And, and his whole point is, look, we have to decide this, but can we, can we wait until after dinner or can we just knock it out right now? <laughs> right. He's, uh, he's all, Bilbo. he's all about, he's practical. That's what he is. He's practical. He is Bilbo's. down to business. He's like, look, yeah. lunch has been catered. It's in the other room. It's getting cold. Can we, can we please just get this done? Either finish this or let's come back and do the meeting later. Right. And I'm going to go ahead and pick up right there and read to the end of this chapter. Can you believe it? I cannot believe we're about to finish the Council of Elrond. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? We might get halfway yeah. through this and go like, yeah, we still have to talk about more. Yeah, no kidding. No one answered. The noon bell rang. Still no one spoke. 
Frodo glanced at all the faces, but they were not turned to him. All the council sat with downcast eyes, as if in deep thought. A great dread fell on him, as if he was awaiting the pronouncement of some doom that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might after all never be spoken. An overwhelming longing to rest and remain at peace by Bilbo's side in Rivendell filled all his heart. At last, with an effort, he spoke and wondered to hear his own words as if some other will was using his small voice. I will take the ring, he said, though I do not know the way. Elrond raised his eyes and looked at him, and Frodo felt his heart pierced by the sudden keenness of the glance. If I understand aright all that I have heard, he said, I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo, and that if you do not find a way, no one will. This is the hour of the Shire folk, when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Or if they are wise, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? But it is a heavy burden, so heavy that none could lay it on another. I do not lay it on you. But if you take it freely, I will say that your choice is right. And though all the mighty elf friends of old, Hador and Hurin and Turin and Beren himself were assembled together, your seat should be among them. But you won't send him off alone, surely, master, cried Sam, unable to contain himself any longer, and jumping up from the corner where he'd been quietly sitting on the floor. No, indeed, said Elrond, turning towards him with a smile. You at least shall go with him. It is hardly possible to separate you from him, even when he is summoned to a secret council, and you are not. Sam sat down, blushing and muttering. A nice pickle we've landed ourselves in, Mr. Frodo, he said, shaking his head. God, I love Sam right there. Yeah. Oh, man. So much. Obviously, there's a lot here. There's a reason why we're only, you know, we still have like 15 minutes of conversation to have in this episode. Yeah. And we just finished the last reading. That's because there's so much to unpack. Yeah. The silence. Have you ever been in a room where there's that uncomfortable silence? Oh, yeah. This is many, like that times, times 10, isn't it? I mean, yeah. this is a seriously awkward silence. Well, because it's not just an awkward silence because of somebody, something somebody no. has said. We've all been in that situation. This well, is right, that awkward right. silence where everybody feels they need to say something or feels like they need to do something. But they don't know what to say or do. Right. And yeah. nobody really wants to either. <laughs> no, yeah. no. Nobody wants to be the first to speak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is, yeah. yeah, this is a very, very awkward and foreboding silence foreboding good good word there and yeah, i like really that we is. take we take a step back from the outside world from the council mm -hmm. and we we take a step into into frodo here don't we and we see yeah we really do you know, we see what's going on inside him we see this great dread right and this pronouncement of doom it's something that he's, he's kind of he's known this has been coming for a long time and he just right. kind of hoped that it would never come to this and he just wants to stay here in rivendell yeah. with bilbo yeah. that's he wants to be that, here with bilbo that fills all his heart. That is his one desire at this moment. Yeah. But what does he do? Yeah, he, he goes against that desire to offer mm -hmm. the one thing he knows will take him away from this place that he wants to be mm -hmm. more than any place else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it needs to be done. And, and to be fair, it's, it's not just him doing this, is it? Right. I think that is, that is huge. Can we just reread that line? He wondered mm -hmm. to hear his own words as if some other will was using his small voice. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I, I wrote a Prancing Pony Pondering about inspiration a few years ago. You know, this idea uh-huh. of characters oh, yeah, having, yeah. having words put in their mouths. Yeah. Happens a lot, you know, like when Baron mm-hmm. is before Thingol. Right. And, uh, words or when Tuor gets to, uh, to the top of uh, the, right. the pass there. And is, That's yeah. right. In Gondolin. Mm-hmm. Or uh, when Frodo's in Shelob's lair, and you know he has the Aya Erendil, oh, yeah. Yanyan, and Kalima, but that's actually another voice speaking through his. Right. I did not list this one in that essay. I don't believe, mm-hmm. but this is a really important instance of it. Very important. And um, it's all. I mean, it's a thing in medieval English literature. I'll actually put a link to that pondering in the show oh, notes for this, great, so folks yeah. can read it. But we uh, do that. yeah, this is a this is a thing in medieval English literature, and it's always a sign that. The speaker's being used by a higher power. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's divine inspiration, really. And yet, as we'll see, it's not it's not certain. It's not as though he still must do this. He's he's offering the offer, maybe coming externally, right? The words to make this offer are coming from some external source. Let's just be clear, Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. But he still, as we'll find out with Elrond, has to make the decision to to accept this, right? And that's a free will choice. So we'll we'll get to that more. But boy, this idea. Of, of another will using his voice is, mm-hmm. is amazing, really is. Yeah. I guess that that really does lead us straight into the free will thing, doesn't it? It, it does, yeah, because, I mean, Elrond actually then says this. He's, he's talking yeah. about, he says, I think this task is appointed yeah. for you, so that's fate. Right. But he also says, I do not lay it on you. Nobody can lay it on you. Right. But if you take it freely, you're making the right choice. If you take it freely. The task that's a that's very appointed. clear explanation yeah. of what goes on here between fate and free will. This is Absolutely. fated to happen. And if you take this action freely of your own free will, then you are making the right choice. But you're but not you forced to But you could turn so. it down. That's mm-hmm. right. If you take it freely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really big. And something to note here from uh, one of the letters. Actually, it's a draft for a letter to Eileen Elgar. This is letter number 246 in the collection. She had commented on Frodo's failure to surrender the ring at the cracks of doom. Spoiler. <laughs> I think everybody knows knows what's going to happen. Yeah, I think so. And Tolkien has this to say. He says, I do not think that Frodo's was a moral failure. Hmm. At the last moment, the pressure of the ring would reach its maximum. Impossible, I should have said, for anyone to resist. Certainly after long possession, Hmm. months of increasing torment, and when starved and exhausted. Frodo had done what he could and spent himself completely as an instrument of providence Hmm. and had produced a situation in which the object of his quest could be achieved. His humility, with which he began, and his sufferings were justly rewarded by the highest honor, and his exercise of patience and mercy towards Gollum gained him mercy. His failure was redressed. I love that. I love that. That's such a, a, a rich explanation. And, mm-hmm. and while that really is a great reminder, and the whole point of the letter is to say that Frodo is not a failure, mm-hmm. there are two things here that I want to point out that I think relate back to this passage. The first is that Tolkien clearly identifies Frodo as an instrument of providence. So this goes to Elrond's first point about the task being appointed for him and also to the idea of another will using his voice. Mm -hmm. But the second thing in the letter is a little easier to miss. Frodo's humility with which he began. This is the moment he's referring to here, this humble decision to accept the appointment of providence. Mm. And I think his humility is why the, the later failure is redressed, but this is why. This is the evidence of that humility. Mm-hmm. That when he does fail at the Samoth Nauer, uh, he would still be he would still be saved. That he'd be mm-hmm. shown mercy. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely amazing. Yeah. and this Rich is something stuff. I can. As although I know it's going to be years before we get there, it's something I can't wait to get into because it it really oh, yeah. does, it it really is all about 
producing that situation in which the quest can mm-hmm. be achieved. Frodo can't achieve the quest on his own. No, no, he couldn't. Gollum has to do that for him, though Gollum does not mean to do it either. It's no. But it is because Frodo has sort of set up the pieces. He set up the dominoes. Yeah. Yeah, and really um, and I, something I just can't wait to get into. I know that is, but I will have to. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to wait a, a few years. As a, a few years. Of fact. Uh, the hour of the Shire folk. My goodness, boy, that's telling. I, I, yeah, isn't it? You know, Bilbo yeah. played a huge part in it. Now it's Frodo, and Frodo's not going to be by himself. Even though at this point, Elrond doesn't necessarily have any intention of sending Sam with him, uh, or Merry and Pippin, for that matter. In fact, mm-hmm. we'll find out later that he doesn't want them to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, especially Pippin. He wanted to send elf number 47 and elf number 48, if I recall. Right, I think so. Yeah, the red shirt elves. Yeah. Uh, The hour of the Shire folk. Yeah, Hmm. because that's that's what this is about, the ennoblement of the Shire folk. This is about Mm -hmm. the small hands turning the wheels of the world. I think I just misquoted that. But uh, we were just talking about that a moment ago. And none of us could have foreseen this, he says. Who (laughs) who of us could have foreseen this? Right. We wouldn't have known that this was going to happen. Who would have guessed? Yeah. This is a fancy way of saying who'd have thunk, really. <laughs> right. This is Elrond, Elrondish for who'd have thunk. Right, exactly. And this will elevate Frodo to yes. a place among the elf friends, the elf friends of old. Yeah, now he's already been named an elf friend, right? Yep, I mean, that's, that's important. Yeah. But let's take but a look at like these. The mighty yeah, this is elf the, friends of old. The, the, the role of honor of the Adai, yeah. yeah, Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about these guys a little bit. Yeah, so we've got, of course... And folks will remember these from season one, but just in case anybody hasn't. Yeah, if, those. if they haven't decided to tackle the Silmarillion yet, we wanted to recap these things. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got Hador. He was Lord of Dor Loman. He served right. Fingolfin of the Noldor, and he died defending the rear guard at the Dagor Bragalach. Right. The Battle of Sudden Flame. Yeah. That's right. We discussed that back in episode 30. Mm-hmm. My goodness, that was a while ago. Mm-hmm. And then we get Hurin. Now, Hurin was the grandson of Hador, who also then was the Lord of Dor Loman. Now, he held the rear while Turgon and what was left of Fingon's host retreated. And that gives me an excuse to just reread the dramatic paragraph from the Silmarillion because I can. Just anytime it's, you can. You got to do it. It's our show. Go ahead. Do it. Last of all, Hurin stood alone. Then he cast aside his shield and wielded an axe two-handed. And it is sung that the axe smoked in the black blood of the troll guard of Gothmog until it withered. And each time that he slew, Hurin cried, Aure in Tuluva, day shall come again. Seventy times he uttered that cry, but they took him at last alive by the command of Morgoth. For the orcs grappled him with their hands, which clung to him still, though he hewed off their arms, and ever their numbers were renewed, until at last he fell buried beneath them. <laughs> I just get chills reading Aure in Tuluva, by the oh, way. Oh, well, yeah. And Every you've done it a few time. times since episode cool. 34 when we first yeah. covered that chapter. And uh, yeah. you get better at it every time, I have to oh, say. Oh, well, thank you, sir. That is just, uh, that is such an amazing moment. Seeing this wiry little guy, because he's not described mm-hmm. as like a super bulky, strong guy. No, he's a little guy. He was a scrapper. He's a, a sinewy, yeah, he's a scrapper. Good way to put it. And he's just hacking away with this this two-handed axe. 70 times. 70 or 70 kills. Mm-hmm. So much so that he's kills chopping at, the arms off the hands that are grappling him. 70 oh, kills oh, oh. at this moment in a battle right, right, that's right. been going on for a while. I suspect there were probably more kills before that point. I bet I bet there were. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, when Legolas and Gimli are, oh, that only counts as one. And uh, 22, 23. Yeah. Huron's like, 70. That's cute. You guys are <laughs> Come at me, bro. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 My goodness. 
Mm. And then who else is mentioned? But oh, Turin, well, Turin, of course. Yeah, yeah. Turin, of course, was Hurin's son. So mm-hmm. that's three men of that line uh, mm-hmm. who were elf friends. Right. And Hammond and Skull sum up Turin's story rather succinctly. I think most people are probably familiar with this story. Yeah, uh, among yeah. even if they haven't worlds. read the Silmarillion, right? Yeah, but Hammond and Skull say that Turin, either through the curse of Morgoth or because of failings in his own character, was ill-fated in much that he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's understatement. <laughs> that's a good way Hammond of putting Skull, it. Skull, understatement of the century there. Yep. He was one of the greatest warriors of the First Age, yet he slew his best friend, mm. was instrumental in bringing about the fall of Nargothrond. Oh, yeah, there's that. And unknowingly married his own sister. Oops. But he also achieved the deed of a true hero in the slaying of the great dragon Glauron. And that, that is why he deserves a place in this list, despite all the mistakes that he made, Mm -hmm. all the horrible things that he did on purpose and on accident. Yeah. But because he slew Glaurung, that's why he deserves a place among these heroes. And you can And it's why if you read the the, the Dagor Dagorath, the idea of a a battle to end all battles, he's the one who ends up getting to, to, to kill Morgoth. Yep, that's right. Mm. And we covered his story in episodes 36, 38, and 39 back in season one. Oh, that's right. That's, that, that was, I'm like, wait a minute. They weren't consecutive? And then I remember. No, 37, I we think, was when that. we interviewed Simon Tolkien. Yeah. I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think these days we try, we try really hard not to break up the chapters for you folks. Right. Over holidays or specials and things like that. It, it, it does make juggling the schedule a little harder. Back in those days, we weren't planning ahead quite as much. I don't think we were planning that we'd have an ahead to plan. You know, kind of, kind of one episode at a time. Yeah. Talk about winging it, but uh, yep. you know, and then of course you get Baron. There's really not much more that we have to say about the man who captured a Silmaril and the heart of the most beautiful of all the children of Iluvatar. There you go. Except yeah. that you can hear a lot more about him in episodes oh, yeah. 31, 32, and 33. That's right. That's absolutely right. And uh, boy, Baron, pretty amazing. So I mean, we're talking really good company here. Really, really good yeah. company. Yeah. This is the Hall of Fame. Who your name is going to be mentioned alongside if you accomplish this task. Yeah. Well, and Baron, of course, is a is an ancestor of Elrond. That's true. You know? So yeah. That is true. Amazing stuff. And actually so is uh so is Hador. Well, that's true. I mean all of them well Yeah. Not Hurin yeah, and Hador Turin. Is, but... Not not Hurin yeah. and Turin, right. Right. But yeah, Hador, his line was continued because Baron ended up Yeah, goodness, I'd have to look all that up, but he is, you're right. Because yeah, Tuor was descended from, because Tuor was uh, Elrond's grandfather and he was descended right. from Hador. Yeah. Right, that's right. Yeah. Good stuff there. But then Sam, well, okay, you know, if, if Frodo's going to go, he's not going to go by himself. Oh, love that. I love his dedication. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. And yet the, the, um, the immediate recognition of, yeah, we're in a nice pickle. I mean, it's like he's, yeah. he's not going to let Frodo do it alone, but he knows that this is, this is oh, a yeah. dangerous situation. And I'm not sure that he was originally intending. I mean, look at the way he says about not sending Frodo alone. He doesn't say, you'll let me go with him, right? No, it's, you won't send him off alone, surely, right? You're going to send, like, powerful warriors to protect him. Oh, that's I mean, a I know Sam point. really does mean himself here, but you're not certain that he does. But, of course, he does because it's Sam. Right. Awesome. That's great. Well, folks, that may conclude our discussion on the Council of Elrond, the five episodes worth. But we're not done yet. We've got Bartleman's bag coming your way in just a minute. And when that's done, the talk continues all night long at the Prancing Pony. That's right. We've always got lots of discussion happening in our social media spaces. At our Common Room on Facebook, you'll find comments, questions, corrections, and more on every episode, as well as updates from us throughout the week. Just look for the Prancing Pony podcast on Facebook and click the like and follow buttons. Make sure you click both of those. 
That's right. And now we have another common room on Reddit. You can find great discussions there at r slash prancingponypod. Now, as always, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram with the handle at prancingponypod. So follow us wherever you might be. If you like us, please share us on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, anywhere you can find Tolkien fans. And if you really want to let the world know your feelings about us, give us a review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more visible our podcast is. That helps others find us and this great community of Tolkien fans we've built together. Yep. And if you'd like access to exclusive content like postscripts, quarterly specials, PPP swag, and more, check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod to find out how you can join the fellowship of the podcast. Now, I think it's time to see what old Barnuman has in the mailbag for us. Sean? All right. Well, we've got a couple of questions from Tracy about some things that were on the council's agenda today. Okay. First, Tracy asks, how exactly are the three bound to the one if Sauron had no hand in their making and Celebrimbor kept mm. them secret? Right. How could Sauron have made something that had power over things he wasn't aware existed? Why would it be better if the three had never been? You know, that is a valid question. Uh, however, we should clarify that Celebrimbor did not keep the three secret from Sauron. Right. Uh, of the Rings of Power, the Third Age tells us, In those days the smiths of Ost in Ethil surpassed all that they had contrived before, and they took thought and they made rings of power. But Sauron guided their labors, and he was aware of all that they did, for his desire was to set a bond upon the elves and to bring them under his vigilance. Now the elves made many rings, but secretly Sauron made one ring to rule all the others, and their power was bound up with it, to be subject wholly to it, and to last only so long as it too should last. So that tells us a few things. First, that Sauron was aware of all that they did, so he knew about the rings they made, including the three which were the last. Right, that's right. And later in that chapter, we're told Sauron could not discover them. But that means he couldn't uncover them or locate them. He knew they existed. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that he didn't know that they were out there. Right. And that's an important distinction to make. Now, that passage you read also tells us that Sauron made the One Ring specifically to have power over all the others, including that's the three. Right. Now, we don't know exactly how this works because Tolkien doesn't no. write that way. We don't know mechanically or magically what it does. We just know that it was a right. key design element. This one ring is designed to control all the others, so it does that. And right. remember that Sauron guided their labors from the beginning of the ring project with the goal of setting a bond upon the elves. So mm -hmm. this was his plan all along. He, he may yeah. at any point have introduced something to the elvish designs that gave him a back door, so to speak, to controlling the rings later on. Mm. It's almost like he put some malware into them that he yeah. knew he could exploit later on. Yeah, that's a pretty good analogy. Thank you. It seems a little silly, but but it kind of no, works. I mean, it really. fits. You're right. I mean, he yeah. puts in a back door that he can access remotely yeah. Yeah. Uh, and trigger yeah, control. Yeah, exactly. Now, as for why it would be better if the three had never been, I think because making them was kind of like opening Pandora's box. Had yeah, they never yeah. made them, then, okay, all the beautiful things that they kept preserved in these places like Rivendell and Lorien, all those things would have faded a long time ago, but at right. least that would have been nature taking its course. That would have been exactly. a natural playing out of events. Right. But they did make the three, and they wrought all those beautiful things with it, but also mm -hmm. created a way for Sauron to control them if he regains the one ring. And, right. and again, I'm going to mix metaphors here, but that's like you can't put that genie back in the bottle, right? Uh, um, no, that's true. So, yeah, they've created this thing that Sauron can exploit. And if they hadn't created it, then Sauron wouldn't have power over them in that way that he is that's going true. to have. That's true. And, and again, if the one ring is destroyed, all that beauty that they wrought with these exploitable tools is going right. to fade anyway. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like it's all going to be for naught in the long run. 
That's true. Well, Tracy's second question is, is Bilbo's offer to take the ring a genuine one, or is it in some small, even subconscious way, an attempt to get it back? We know from many meetings that it still has power over him. Does he really not recognize his age and ability? <laughs> Sean, do we recognize our age and ability? <laughs> Certainly not. In nope. fairness, no. Uh, perhaps after being stretched for so long? Or is there a hint of the ring at work in his offer? Mm, what do you think, Sean? Really good question. That is an interesting one. Some speculation here, but I think Bilbo is perfectly sincere in his offer. I, I think that he is taking some personal accountability for his part in this. Um, mm -hmm. We've seen several times over the course of this chapter that taking accountability for one's mistakes and even the mistakes of one's ancestors is a trait of the heroes. And I think he's he's doing that here. Mm -hmm. And I think he's also trying to atone for his lies about the ring in the past. I think he would gladly be the one to take the ring. And, and, and I think I, I'm sure deep down he probably knows he's too old to do it. Uh, but just like us, he's he's trying to trying to fool himself here. <laughs> um, I think he would still gladly make the sacrifice if the council asked it of him. So yes, I yeah. think it's a totally sincere offer. I think he's being completely on the level. Right. However, that doesn't mean that this isn't also a big old helping of the ring at work. Oh, I am yeah. sure that for all of his genuine interest in setting things right, I think he also sees this deep down as a chance for him to have the ring again. Um, maybe the ring in so much as it has its own agency, maybe the ring sees Bilbo as an easier target, you know, because mm -hmm. Bilbo did all these wacky things with the ring and he used it to fight spiders and steal chicken from elves and all these things, as opposed to <laughs> yeah, yeah, these yeah. people who just want to destroy it. Yeah, um, yeah. And so maybe if the ring has any say in this, if the ring even has that kind of agency, maybe the ring is sort of attracted to him for that purpose. Maybe. So yeah. I think, Alan, if I can paraphrase one of your usual sayings here, you, you know, may. you usually say, is it fate or free will? And the answer is yes. Well, yeah. is it the ring at work or is it Bilbo's own uh, volition? The answer is yes. Taking the words right out of my mouth as usual, Sean. Uh, this is an <laughs> example of, of yes and and not either or. Bilbo's heart is in the right place. He sees how much chaos his little discovery has caused. And he's willing to do what needs to be done, even if it is really well beyond his abilities at this point. Mm -hmm. But like Sean said, you know, we all know the ring has its own motives and purposes at times. I'm sure it would far rather be with its old master who liked to use it often instead of with this new guy who seems bent on destroying it. <laughs> Definitely. Yep. Yeah. Well, folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Now, please be sure to join us again in two weeks. We're taking next week off for the Thanksgiving holiday when one of our guests from Tolkien 2019 will be joining us. That's right. We'll get a full episode to visit with Brian Sibley. Oh, and he was such a delight to spend a little time with in Birmingham. I cannot oh, wait yeah. to have a full episode with him. Mm -hmm. And you folks are going to love it, too. Yeah. We're going to be talking about his work on the BBC radio adaptations of The Lord of the Rings, of course, and Tales from the Perilous Realm, and a whole lot more. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a great one. And as always, folks, we want to thank each of you who are listening. And we also want to give a very special thank you to our patrons at the Kierdan's Contribution Tier. That's Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, Chad in Texas, Lance in New Jersey, Paul in Colorado, Jerry in Texas, Bruce in California, and Mario in Utah. Thank you, all of you, so very much. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, and, well, most of all, your most efficient GPS routes to the cracks of doom, no toll roads please, to Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com. Extra points for sending us audio of those GPS routes in Gollum's voice. Just saying. Ooh, yes, definitely. <laughs> now, folks, you know Barlaman's not always punctual with mail, but we'll get back to you as soon as we can. 
and your question or comment may be featured on an upcoming show. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been far too short a time to spend amongst such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends.